0: The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. How long have you had these droids? About three or four seasons. They're up for sale if you want them. Let me see your identification.
1: You don't need to see his identification.
2: We don't need to see his identification.
1: These aren't the droids you're looking for
2: not
1: the droids we're looking for. He can go about his business.
2: You can go about your business. Move along. Move along. Move along.
3: Hey,
1: we don't serve their kind here. What? Your droids. They'll have to wait outside. We don't want them here.
4: Much way out by the speeder. We don't want any
1: trouble. I heartily agree with you, sir.
3: Good morning, London. It's Thursday, April 9th, 2015. I'm Robert Vaughn.
0: And I'm Mary Lou Ambrosio.
3: And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM.
0: Where we will be with you from now until noon.
3: No, no, not right wing. Just right.
2: Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright.
3: Feedback at justrightmedia.org is our email address if you wish to give us a comment, tell us how we're doing, if you have any suggestions. Also, go to justrightmedia.org, and there you can um, subscribe to us on YouTube. You can um, follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook. And as well, you can go to our iTunes and download every one of our shows, 395 as of 12 o'clock today. And... um, don't forget to leave a comment and a rating on iTunes for us. We'd appreciate it. Thank you very much. So on today's show, I'll be talking about the top 10 intellectuals in the world, who choose them and why. And um, what are you going to be talking about in the last half hour, Mary Lou?
0: Well, I'm going to be speaking some more about Camille Paglia, more specifically going into her long-held views on the problems with public education. So
3: a follow-over from your yeah, appearance from, here last week, and yes. last week's show, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to start off the um, the hour by talking about um, and giving my brief observations on the right of businessmen to refuse service to androids, uh, or and um, homosexuals, or whites and blacks and Asians, women, men, Christians, Jews, whatever. and anyone he or she sees fit not to do business with, for whatever reason he chooses. But there's a condition. And it's not as clear-cut an issue as some people are saying it is. It's not really a religious issue. It's not really a right of a businessman issue. There's something in between. And I had to get my head around this, and I called up Bob Metz, and um, we talked about it at length because I was quite adamant at one point in time just saying, you know, taking the businessman's point of view. And he gave me a great idea, which I think I'm going to um, adopt, and I'll talk about it here. The issue was recently brought to the attention of the media by uh, an incident in Indiana where a a pizzeria put the public on notice that if a gay couple wanted to order pizzas for their wedding, they'd have to say no, citing Indiana's Religious Freedom Restoration Act, a state law mirroring the United States federal law, which goes by the same name. Without going into the decades of cases uh, which tested the federal and similar state laws, I'm going to ask the general question, Should a private business be permitted to discriminate for any reason rational or, as I believe in this case, irrational at all? Businessmen discriminate openly all the time. People do all the time. A few examples. A women's only yoga gym. A bar which will not serve to an 18-year-old, even though he's an adult in law. The law says you can't be and uh, drink until until you're 19. A barber who refuses to cut the hair of someone who is filthy. A Catholic priest who refuses to marry a gay couple in his church. A bar who has a women's night where women get in free, but men must pay the cover charge. I've always hated that personally. (laughs) I said, I'm I'm being discriminated against. Put a dress on. (laughs) (laughs) I just won't go that far. A construction firm who won't hire quadriplegics because they can't do the job. Makes sense. Okay. Some of the reasons for discrimination are quite reasonable and defensible. Others are not. Here's my take, which I've developed mostly, like I said, with Bob Metz's help, who agrees that it's a complex issue. A business acting in private can discriminate all at once. Now, I'm talking about the ideal here, not the law. We're talking an ideal situation. Acting in private means that it does not cater or advertise to the public at large, such as with a private club. Such a club can, if it chooses, be a man's only club. No women allowed. Or, more controversially, it can be a whites-only club, excluding anyone of any other races. And the reverse is true, a blacks-only club, excluding whites or Asians. Such decisions stem from a person's right to their property and from their right to associate with whomever they wish in the private realm. And that's key. This is not the law of the land, unfortunately, but I am saying that it should be. It is my belief that constitutional law should restrict the actions of government, not private citizens. So where, as our constitution says, you can't discriminate against people based on certain criteria, constitutions are meant to limit government and government should not discriminate at all. Once they put a shingle on their storefront, however, a businessman has now entered the public realm. And while they still have rights to their property and of the freedom to associate or not with people, they have voluntarily set conditions on their own behavior. For example, they're advertising that anyone can just walk in their front door onto their premises. This is something that an, a member of the public could not do had the business not made it clear by advertising themselves themselves as a business open to the public. But if a business chooses to exclude certain segments of the public from their establishment, um, I think they must do so openly, at the front door, and on their advertisements, as in the case of the Indiana Pizzeria, or in the case of a women's-only club. Once a person has been allowed into the establishment, though the only reason to refuse service should be justifiable in a court, i.e. rational. For example, the barber services all members of the public but a bum walks in who hasn't washed in months, stinks to high heavens and carries lice. The barber can refuse service on rational grounds. If, however, the barber doesn't want to cut the hair of a gay man, he better advertise the fact openly at the front door or face a civil suit for refusing to perform a service publicly advertised by virtue of his open sign on the door and no restrictions being listed. In other words, it's a sort of a, a deception, a sort of a fraud to say that you're open to the public, but once you get in there, you're not served. My barber actually has such a sign uh, to cover all bases. His sign on these uh, on walls says, uh, we reserve the right to refuse service to anyone. Um, there was a recent case in Toronto where a woman was refused service by a Muslim barber because he claimed his religion forbade him from touching a woman who's not a relative. If he wanted to discriminate on such an irrational basis, he should have put the public on notice before they went to the effort of walking into his shop. And although I forget the reference, Ayn Rand even made mention of the legitimate restrictions the public can place on a private establishment once it caters to the public. She commented that a business should not be permitted to put objectionable, i.e. sexual objectionable material in a window display visible to the public on the street. In short... A businessman, to me, has the right to discriminate on rational grounds at any time without prior notice. But if you're claiming that you won't cater gay weddings, you better make that discrimination public or face a civil suit, which I hope you lose. Because I, as a member of the public, want to know that I'm dealing with an irrational person, such as the Indiana pizzeria owner, so that I can boycott them. Now, I can go into that topic. At length, and I know that you're chomping at the bit. You and I in the green room, there are talking about this particular issue, Mary Lou, for about an hour. I think. Yeah. This can go on for a long time, and uh, like I said, it's debatable. But I want to move the topic now onto to uh, another issue, and that is intellectualism. Definition of intellectualism, of a relating to the intellect or its use, developed or chiefly guided by the intellect rather than by emotion or experience, rational, Requiring use of the intellect, given to study, reflection, and speculation, engaged in activity requiring the individual's use of the intellect. I remarked on a previous show that one cannot vote the truth. Reality is objective. It doesn't care what you think, no matter how many of you think it. Case in point is this year's prospects vote for the uh, top 10 intellectuals of the world. While less than 3,000 readers of this British magazine participated, the results conclusively prove my point that numbers do not make truth. Prospect magazine, without any apparent shame, bills itself as the leading magazine of ideas. They apparently have as much hubris as a radio show calling itself just right. They have paid circulation of 19,410, which is a fair number of people. To put it in perspective, it just so happens that 19,410 is the exact population of Summerfield, Florida. Where's Summerfield, Florida, you ask? My point exactly. It's not a very popular magazine. The number of people who took Prospect's poll on the top intellectuals of the world, they reported as being is just less than 3,000. And to put that into perspective, that's likely more than one-third of the capacity of the JW Little Stadium here on campus. So again, not a lot of people, but it got a lot of traction in the media for whom they chose. Let's assume for the moment that the less than 3,000 meters of Prospect are a typical sample of humanity. What does their selection say about humanity? They voted comedian Russell Brand as the world's fourth most important thinker. God help us. The Mirror reported on the poll thusly, quote, After making his name as a an and rule-breaking comic who lost his radio to a slot over prank calls to actor Andrew Sachs, Brand has become a vocal proponent of the anti-capitalist message with his Revolution Book, YouTube channel, The Trues, and appearances on Newsnight and Question Time. But his inclusion on a list topped by French economist Thomas Piketty and including Greek finance minister Yanis Varoufakis, Nobel Prize winner Paul Krugman, And German philosopher Jürgen Habermas is certain to raise certain eyebrows. Now, Piketty, who took top place in the list of world thinkers after his uh, capital in the 21st century became a surprise bestseller, was described as having an extraordinary impact outside the world of professional economists with his message that capitalist societies have an inbuilt tendency to produce inequality favoring the top 1%. Also on the list was British philosopher John Gray, the uh, former professor of European thought at the London School of Economics, who was described as, quote, the West's preeminent oracle of catastrophe, unquote. Prospect said it was striking that several of its top 10 thinkers, including Piketty, Brand, Krugman, and Varoufakis, a member of the radical uh, Syriza government, as well as a Canadian author, Naomi Klein, were, broadly speaking, on the political left. I'd say so, broadly speaking. Here's a quick rundown of Prospect's top 10. Okay, Thomas Piketty, French economist from Wikipedia. He argues that the rate of capital return in developed countries is persistently greater than the rate of economic growth and that this will cause wealth inequality to increase in the future. He considers that to be a problem and to address it. He proposes redistribution through a progressive global tax on wealth. His PhD thesis was on wealth redistribution. He's a member of the Scientific Orientation Board of the Association Agauchant Europe, a so-called think tank founded by Dominique Strauss-Kahn, and we all know about him, don't we? Mm -hmm. (laughs) French economist, lawyer, politician, managing director of the International Monetary Fund, and a member of the French Socialist Party, and as a youth and activist member of the Union of Communist Students. So, Thomas Piketty, socialist. Yanis Varoufakis. Greek finance minister and member, I should say enough said right there, but I'll go on. <laughs> member of the Streets of Party and the Coalition of the Radical Left, which was organized compri- orga- originally comprised a broad array of groups, 13 in total, and uh, independent politicians, including social democrats, democratic socialists, left-wing patriots, feminists, anti capitalist centrists, and environmentalist groups, as well as Marxist-Leninists, Maoists, Trotskyists, Euro-communists, Luxembourgists, and also Euroskeptic Components, and that's from Wikipedia. So, I see a pattern here. <laughs> I've only gotten to two of them. Oh, wait look, I can go down the list for a pattern. Uh. Naomi Klein. She's a rabid anti-capitalist, social activist, climate-changing author of three notable status books, Shock Doctrine, The uh, Rise of Disaster Capitalism, This Changes Everything, Capitalism versus the Climate, and No Logo. Described as a book, quote, which for many became a manifesto of the anti-corporate globalization movement. In it, she attacks brand-oriented consumer culture and the operations of large corporations, If Klein's anti-intellectualism and pure ignorance of things greater than her weren't apparent from her books, Klein supported the boycott divestment and sanctions campaign against Israel, arguing that, quote, the best strategy to end the increasing bloody occupation is for Israel to become the target of a global movement that put an end to apartheid in South South Africa. So, Naomi Klein, top socialist in the world, if you ask me. Now, Russell Brand. Mm -hmm. Number four, Russell Brand. We've talked about Russell Brand on Just Right before. Putting aside his acerbic sarcasm and his abrasive arrogance, a trait common to the left, I find, he is the squawking parrot for those on the left who can actually read and write, like Klein. I have to give it to her, she can read and write. No original thought here, though, just rhetorical, vitriolic disgust with capitalism, democracy and the rule of law, and money. This multimillionaire who is directly a direct beneficiary of capitalism, profits, and the free market is the poster boy of that one trait common to all on the left emotionalism. True to form of the intele- anti-intellectual, Brand was expelled from the Italia Conti Academy for illegal drug use and poor attendance. Doesn't sound like a scholar to me for some reason or an intellectual or a thoughtful person. Actors, uh, actor Brand's first book. <laughs> ah, a published author, Mary Lou. Nice. Perhaps there's some intellectualism here after all. Yeah. His first book was an autobiography called My Bookie Wookiee. <laughs> Andrew Anthony from The Observer comment that, quote, Russell Brand's gleeful tale of drugs and debauchery in my bookie-wookie puts most other celebrity memoirs to shame. Okay, we're going to listen to Russell Brand in his own words in an interview with Jeremy Paxton um, on BBC um, for the next few minutes. When I come back, more on Russell Brand and others the left consider to be intellectual.
2: Russell Brand, who are you to edit a political magazine?
5: I don't know what the typical criteria is. I don't know many people that edit political magazines, so I'm a, ki- a person with crazy hair, quite a good sense of humour, don't know much about politics, I'm ideal. But is it true
2: you don't even vote? Yeah, no, I don't vote. Well, how do you have any authority to talk about politics then?
5: Well, I don't uh, get my authority from this pre-existing paradigm which is quite narrow and only serves a few people. I look elsewhere for alternatives that might be of service to humanity. Alternate means, alternate political
2: systems. Uh, they being?
5: Well, I've not invented it yet, Jeremy. I had to do a magazine last week. I've had a lot on me plate. But I say, but here's the thing it shouldn't do. Shouldn't destroy the planet. Shouldn't create massive economic disparity. Shouldn't ignore the needs of the people. The burden of proof is on the people with the power, not people like doing a magazine. For How a do you
2: imagine the people get power?
5: Well, I imagine there are sort of hierarchical systems that have been preserved through they get generations. by being
2: voted in. Well, you that's say how that, they Jeremy, You like can't it, even
5: be asked to vote. It's quite a narrow, uh, quite a narrow prescriptive parameter that changes within the, the, uh, the... In a democracy, that's how it works. Well, I don't think it's working very well, Jeremy. So. When did you
2: last vote? Never. You've never, ever voted? No. Do you think that's really bad? So you struck an attitude, what, before the age of 18? Well, I was busy being a drug addict at that point because
5: I come from the kind of social conditions that are exacerbated by an indifferent system that really just administrates for large corporations and ignores the population that well, it was voting to serve. You're
2: blaming the political class for the
5: fact that you had a drug problem? No, no, no. I'm saying I was part of a social and economic class that is underserved by the current political system and drug addiction is one of the problems it creates when you have huge underserved Impoverished populations, people get drug problems and also don't feel like, uh, like they want to engage with the current political system because they see that it doesn't work for them. They see that it makes no difference. They see that they're not served. Well, of I course say it that doesn't apathy... work for them if they
2: not bother to vote. Jeremy,
5: my darling, I'm not saying that the, the apathy doesn't come from us, the people. The apathy comes from the politicians. They are apathetic to our needs. They're only interested in servicing the needs of
2: corporations. You don't believe in democracy. No, I need... You want a revolution, don't you?
5: The planet is being destroyed. We are creating an underclass. We are exploiting poor people all over the world and the genuine legitimate problems of the people are not being addressed by our political class. all of those
2: things may be true they are true but you took i wouldn't argue with you about many of them.
5: well how come i feel so cross with you it can't just be because of that beard
2: it's gorgeous it's possibly because and if the d- daily mail don't want it
5: i do i'm against them grow it longer you are. tangle it into your armpit hair
2: you are a very trivial man.
5: <laughs> what do you think? I am trivial. Yes. A minute ago, you were having a go at me because I want a, a revolution. Now no, I'm I'm, asking nobody, I'm bouncing but about I'm a not
2: having place. a go at you because you want a revolution. Many Good. people want a revolution, but I'm asking you what it would be like. All what's, what I'm saying what's the scheme? That's all I'm asking. What's the scheme? You talk vaguely about revolution. What is it?
5: I think a socialist egalitarian system based on the massive redistribution of wealth, heavy taxation of corporations, and massive responsibility for uh, energy companies and any companies that's in spo- exploiting the environment, I think they should be, ta- I think the very concept, concept of profit should be hugely reduced. David Cameron says profit isn't a dirty word. I say profit is a filthy word.
2: levy these taxes?
5: I think we do need to like, there needs to be a centralised administrative system but built government. on... government? Uh, yes. There I, needs I, to be a government? Well we might maybe call it something else. Call them like the admin bods right. so they don't get and a And how would they themselves. be chosen? Jeremy don't ask me to sit here in an interview with you in a bloody hotel room and devise a global utopian system. I'm merely pointing out that the current... You're calling
2: for revolution? Yeah,
5: absolutely. Absolutely. I'm calling for change. I'm calling for genuine alternatives.
2: But there are many people who would agree with you. Good! The current system is not engaging with all sorts of problems, yes. And they feel apathetic, Mm. really apathetic. But if they were to take you seriously, and not to vote. Yeah, they shouldn't vote. They should.
5: That's one thing they should do. Don't bother voting. Because then when it reaches, there's a point. So these little valves, these sort of like little cosy little valves of recycling and Prius and like, you know, turn up somewhere. It stops us reaching the pit point where we think, oh, this is enough now. Stop voting. Stop pretending. Wake up.
2: Be in reality now. I'm just asking you why would you take you seriously when you're so unspecific? You don't about have what- to take Well, I, I, firstly, I don't mind if you take me
5: seriously. I'm here just to draw attention to a few ideas. I just want to have a little bit of a laugh. I'm saying there are people with alternative ideas that are far better qualified than I am and far better qualified, more importantly, than the people that are currently doing that job because they're not attempting to solve these problems. They're not. They're attempting to placate the population. The measures that are currently being taken around climate change are indifferent, will not solve the, you don't not solve think the they, problem. It's,
2: it's possible as human beings, they're simply overwhelmed by the scale of the problem.
5: Not really. Well, possibly. It might be that. I mean, but that's sort of just semantics, really. Whether they're overwhelmed by it or tacitly maintaining it because of habitual life. I mean, like, mate, I, I, this is what I noticed when I was in the Houses of the Parliament. It's decorated exactly the same as Eton. It's decorated exactly the same as Oxford. So a certain type of people goes in there and thinks, oh, this makes me nervous. And another type of people go in there and go, this is how it should be. And I think that's got to change now, we can no longer have erroneous, duplicitous systems held in place unless it's for the only systems that serve the planet and serve the population of the planet can be allowed to survive. Not ones that serve elites, be they political or corporate elites, and this is what's currently happening. But what I'm saying is that within the existing paradigm, the change is not dramatic enough, not radical enough. So you can well understand public disturbances and public dissatisfaction when there are not genuine changes and genuine alternatives being offered. I say when there is a genuine alternative, a genuine option, then vote for that. But until then, (laughs) don't bother. Why pretend? Why be complicit in this ridiculous illusion?
2: Because by the time somebody comes along, you might think it worth voting for. It may be too late. You see any hope?
5: Remember that? Yeah, totally. There's going to be a revolution. It's totally going to happen. I don't, not only I ain't got a flicker of doubt. This is the end.
3: That's right. It is the end. If people like Russell Brand actually get into power and, and pose their ideas, which by the way are not original at all, it happened in 1917. It's called communism. People, you listen to what he's saying there. Yeah, wealth distribution. Master of wealth distribution. Profit is a filthy word. Yes. Um, and we've got to have something like a government, but we don't call it. Let's right. call it the admin bods. <laughs> oh, come word. on. <laughs> yeah. Number four intellectual in the world, Russell wow. Brand, interviewed by Jeremy Paxton in a great interview. He finally drilled yeah. it home until he made him say exactly what his new utopian Eden would be like. I'll give him another chance, though, to show his intellectualism. Let's see. His second book was called, remember his first book was called Bookie Wookiee? Bookie Wookiee, yes. Second book, Bookie Wookiee 2. Clever. This time it's personal. (laughs) Not exactly a Sir Isaac Newton, is he? His third book, rather than being a treatise, uh, was a collection of columns he wrote for The Guardian, including an interview he did with Noel Gallagher, James Gordon, and David uh, Baddiel about, guess what, the intellectual subject of football. Finally reaching his own level of intellectualism, Brand wrote a children's book titled Russell Brand's Trickster Tales, The Pied Piper of Hamlin. Nicholas Tucker, writing in The Independent, had this to say about Russell Brand's intellectual treatise here. Quote, Were it not for his celebrity, this book in manuscript would surely have been returned to its author by any publisher, along perhaps with some kindly advice for seeking out an anger management course. But Brand's take on the Pied Piper of Hamelin is the first of a series of riffs on traditional Fairy and folk tales. If they are all as bad as this one, British children's books will have hit a new low, unquote. So, very well, Russell Brand. Let's go on with the list of prospects, top 10 intellectuals. Paul Krugman. Uh, now, I would call Krugman an intellectual, but that doesn't mean that his theories are right. A lot of people on this list are what I would say are intellectual, thoughtful scholars. But they are always wrong yeah. <laughs> i shouldn't say always uh actually there was a couple there i Often? couldn't uh, <laughs> No, there, yes so a couple on the list i would have to say that i would uh, say that neither right nor wrong the psychologists there um mm-hmm. uh, some others that i was saying okay that's fair game yeah, yeah you're, you're an intellectual you're a scholar um you have some value mm-hmm. some intellect to, to offer to, to the world but not paul Krugman. Um, you know, he's the winner of the Nobel Memorial Prize in Economic Sciences. Oh, that's great. Got lots of awards. Lots of, uh, but the Nobel Prize Committee these days is not very. Yeah, <laughs> it's not very credible. No, um, he did a thesis on international trade and geographic concentration of wealth by examining the effects of economies of scale and of consumer preference for diverse. Of uh, diverse goods and services, but, but does anyone actually believe that one of the three thousand people or fewer who voted for Krugman actually read Krugman's works on international trade? I doubt it. There's no doubt that they voted for him because he's yet another American anti-capitalist, um, Keynesian New Dealer. Mm-hmm. And by the way, he—that's how he, he's described in, in publications as a Keynesian. <laughs> yeah. And we all know what kind of uh, havoc that's wreaked on the economies of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, number six on the list, um, Arundhati Roy, an Indian writer and environmental uh, activist. She's the spokesperson of the anti-globalization, <laughs> you know, big surprise there, alter um, globalization movement, and a vehement critic of neo-imperialism and U.S. foreign policy. Okay, yeah, uh, she obviously fits the bill of this particular list. Number seven, Jürgen Habermas, German philosopher and sociologist, again, a scholar in his own right, no doubt about it, an intellectual, I would agree. But who were his influences? I
0: don't
3: know. He lists amongst his influences Karl Marx, John Dewey, and Immanuel Kant, all of whom we've discussed on this program as being philosophers at the heart of everything anti-intellectual. You know, Immanuel Kant, the critique of pure reason, come on, what a giveaway. (laughs) Number eight, Daniel Kahneman. US Israeli psychologist, who I have no comment on. I looked at some of his stuff and I'm going, okay, fair game. You know, he's come up with some interesting novel ideas on game theory, things like that, why people make decisions the way they do, um, you know, balancing of probabilities, risk analysis, that kind of a thing. Okay, fair, fair enough. Let's leave him be. John Gray, number nine, UK philosopher, author of False Down, The Delusions of Global Capitalism. Here we go again, 1998 in which he argues that free market globalization is an unstable enlightenment project currently in the process of disintegration. And finally, number 10 on the top 10 list. By the way, there was a whole field of 100 intellectuals listed on the website, and the readers voted for the top 10. Atoll Gawande, U.S. surgeon and writer. Okay, a surgeon. Okay, a man of science. Great, a surgeon. This looks promising until you see that he's also a political activist who worked on the presidential campaigns of Gary Hart and Al Gore. He was Bill Clinton's health care lieutenant during the 1992 campaign and directed one of three committees of the Clinton Health Care Task Force. Mm -hmm. Great. A left-wing toady surgeon all the same looking at this list you can only hope that the readers of prospect are a small group of disgruntled middle age middle class youth who are bored with having the world given to them on a silver platter and have nothing better to do than to bite the hand that feeds them while they dream of a utopian eden where all live together in peace and harmony where we all join hands and sing kumbaya where people make goods and Provide services out of love for their fellow man, rather than that filthy profit, as Rand calls it. Brand calls it rather. Where money has been abolished, they can dream on, and I wish them all a life of irrelevance and obscurity. Spark, do they
6: really believe that Eden exists? Many myths are based on truth, Captain, and they are not unintelligent. Their leader, Dr. Severin, is a man... Dr. Severin is their leader? Yes. A brilliant research engineer in the fields of acoustics, communications, and electronics on Tiburon. He was dismissed from his post when he started this movement. But they've rejected all that, and all that this technology provides, and they seek
2: the primitive.
6: There are many who are uncomfortable with what we have created. It is almost a biological rebellion, a profound revulsion against the planned communities, the programming, the sterilized, artfully balanced atmospheres. They hunger for an Eden where spring comes. All do. The cave is deep in our memory. Yes, that is true, Captain. But, uh... They don't steal
2: space cruisers and act like
6: irresponsible children. What makes you so sympathetic with them? It is not uh, a sympathy so much as curiosity, Captain. A wish to understand. They regard themselves as aliens in their own worlds, a condition with which I am somewhat familiar.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Harvey Mansfield. I have the honor of introducing tonight's speaker. Today, universities are sometimes accused, in my view correctly, of political correctness. Political correctness is in retreat in society outside the universities, but in the universities themselves, it continues with enormous power. What is this thing, political correctness? It's not something which is brand new. I first heard the phrase here at Harvard back in the mid-80s. And yet, it's relatively new. Political correctness doesn't mean having a dominant opinion. Every group, every society has some kind of dominant opinion. The dominant opinion at Harvard now is liberalism. But that isn't what makes Harvard PC. I remember when Harvard was predominantly Republican, so it voted in uh, 1952. The student uh, body of undergraduates voted for President Eisenhower, I remember. No, political correctness doesn't mean having a dominant opinion. What it means is the requirement of sensitivity. You must be sensitive to certain groups, anticipate their objections, share their feelings. It's not a question of answering their arguments, rather of making sure that nobody has to make any arguments. Political correctness is more a matter of good manners than correct opinions. Good manners means sensitive manners, not forcing anyone to state an opinion. Universities today are characterized, above all, by their blandness. Look at the presidents and the deans, (laughs) their mechanical smiles, which in the presence of donors become all-consuming grins. They write soupy prose, and they drink tomato juice. And they're non-judgmental. As their highest ideal, they have replaced Plato's idea of the good with Plotzkin's idea of the vapid. And what about the professors? Almost totally without character. Obsequious to students, even to parents of students. They're given to great inflation. Always on their knees they are trying to be with it, and failing pitifully. (laughs) Professors are insincere because they try to repress their true reactions, or they're weak because they have no true reactions. In some, they are timid, tolerant, and nice. We need an antidote to this disgusting situation. Tonight's event is sponsored by the Institute of Politics at the Kennedy School and by the program on constitutional government in the great, 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 great government department. And we set out on a search to find the most insensitive person in America. <laughs> it's not in the world. But the search was over before it started because we always knew that it was Camille Palia, a woman of character, truthful character, shining character, pungent character. She can smile and she can bite. She has a few sharp edges. She's a sworn enemy, as I've said before, of the namby-pamby, the hoity-toity, and the artsy-fartsy. Her opinions are convincing because they come with conviction. And arguments, and they're appealing because they're
3: nonconformist.
0: Well, how is that, Robert? That, he's,
3: uh, hes a guy I want to listen to.
0: Yeah, that man is uh, the man who introduced Paula at that event is uh, Harvey Mansfield, and he's the William R. Keenan Jr. Professor of Government at Harvard, U- Harvard University. And I so enjoyed his introduction of her that I thought it was worth playing for the audience because how refreshing is it to hear an academic? who has an appreciation appreciation for another bombastic, politically incorrect academic, someone who challenges the status quo thinking. Now, that event took place in late 1998, and listening to it in its entirety, you'd think it's current for some of the problems and situations described within Paglia's speech, but it's not. So once again, I tip my hat to her for being prescient and for seeing these problems coming. It's just unfortunate that people like her and Professor Mansfield and any others who saw it coming didn't succeed in turning around that slide towards negativity that postmodern progressive secularists brought to universities. Because as Bob and I discussed on the show last week, things have only gotten worse in the years that followed. Now, oh, her speech and the Q&A that followed can be found on C-SPAN. It was about an hour and 15 minutes long in entirety, but I'd highly recommend it. And any other Paglia clips we've played on the show, um, like her recent interview with Nick Gillespie of Reason TV, apart from anything else, for for anyone out there who has felt that there's a problem in education— It's invaluable to hear her insights and benefit from the way she so clearly and honestly articulates where the problems lie and why it matters that we fix them. Um, You touched on some, the controversy uh, that's erupting over that RFRA legislation. Mm
3: -hmm. Religious Freedom Act, yeah.
0: Yeah. Now, missing from much of the discussion is the fact that very similar legislation has, I mean, in in the public, you mentioned it, but most people don't, um, that, There was legislation that passed federally by the Clinton administration um, some years ago. There are at least 19 or so other states that have similar legislation. So to a rational mind, this would beg the question, why all the fuss over this now, at this time? And to me, this points to the existence of an agenda at work, an 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 agenda with a deeper purpose. Which requires that emotions are stirred up, so that angst, division, and confusion is created. It's all political, and so I would think that with the proper education, when people are properly informed, they're not going to be as vulnerable to this kind of thing. Um, now, uh, so it, because obviously, on in situations like these, where low information voters that our education system creates are so easily manipulated by the cult of personality style politicians that proliferate the political landscape these days. This is why I see, like Paglia, a very strong need for a properly educated and rational electorate that would not fall prey to this kind of thing. If people like Russell Brand and the rest of the occutard crowd, as I like to call them, To look a little deeper, instead of grabbing on the easy solution but the wrong solution, maybe we could fix some of these problems. Uh, you know. So when it when it comes to moral relativism, of the kind that's being described here, and why we must be able to hold objective views and say with certainty why some ideas are better than others, a little while ago I found myself looking into the origin of the phrase "If you don't stand for something." you'll fall for anything. Mm -hmm. What I found was it was attributed to a medical doctor named Gordon A. Eady, who used it in an article he wrote in January 1945 for a medical journal called Mental Hygiene, when World War II was still on. In discussing the mental health needs of the people at that time, specifically veterans, he said it was important for their mental health and for their resolve that they understood they were fighting two wars, One, a war of arms, and the other, a war of ideas. When I think about that, it seems to me that's where we are again today with Islam, which is why the last thing we need at this time in history is a populace full of people who don't believe what we have is good, what we have is great. Um, They have no resolve, uh, and who don't believe that what we have is worth fighting for were too easily persuaded to roll over, otherwise, and as uh, as these two note, not even bother making an argument in the first place, and that concerns me at this time in history. Robert, I don't know what you think of that. Actually, but.
3: I think most of them actually despise what um, the West stands for. It's not that they don't understand it necessarily. Well, it comes out of that right. ignorance. Um, It's just not they're apathetic. It's not that the universities are bland, as uh, Mansfield said. It's that they actually oppose everything the West stands for. They actually oppose it. How did that come to be, though? Uh, education. It's the universities. Yeah, it's right. the um, elementary schools. It's the high schools. And it goes all the way down to the primary schools. It's I always say on this show, it always goes down to the education. exactly, And the education of the ideas of the intellectuals. Mm-hmm. If Naomi Klein is going to be out there and, and hailed as a person of the intellect, and that pr- gets yeah. taken up by the high schools, her works are going to be uh, required reading by, uh, by the high school students, that's where it goes. Absolutely. That's the progression of ignorance. So you
0: would, you would uh, agree with Camille Paglia on this point. Oh, that, yes. Uh, you know, this is where it started. And as I say, she, that speech goes back to 1998 that she was talking about it. Um, and I only see things getting worse now since that time.
3: Oh, yeah. No, it's gone steadily downhill. I can't believe how far we've uh, progressed down the rabbit hole uh, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> down the rabbit hole of ignorance, uh, because of the school system, because of people like um, well the intellectuals quasi intellectuals yes. i 've already talked about, and it 's people like Camille Paglia and Harvey Mansfield that are, are really fighting the good fight. They are the people who should be mm-hmm. the top intellectuals of this world, the right. people who are standing up against this tide of ignorance yes. against this tide of evil and socialism, and the left that are actually destroying this planet and destroying western civilization
0: absolutely and i'm not sure about the time here
3: yeah i don't know you've got another clip coming up here and it is camille paglia herself isn't it yes yeah did you want to play that now yeah okay Uh, this is camille paglia where was she speaking
0: she this was at at the same event at harvard university at harvard
3: university okay Mm -hmm. let's give a listen to camille paglia we'll be back in about eight minutes
0: I'm going to talk to you uh, about my
4: philosophy of educational reform um, tonight. and I, uh, This is actually the number one issue of my career. Overall, I consider it uh, my mission to try to reform both primary and secondary education in the United States. I myself feel I had a superb education in the public schools and then um, at the State University of New York at Binghamton, I'm an enormous um, believer in public education. I think that we've lost the will to keep up the old standards uh, for many reasons in the last 30 years. Um, If I were to say what is the purpose of of education? uh, It is to sustain, I think. Um, What is the best sustenance uh, that we can give to students that will um, be of use to them in the long run, looking at their, uh, the many phases of their lives. I think of um, this sustenance as of applying, not just to the individual, but to the society at large. It certainly should be obvious to all of us that there is a major political crisis and, in Washington, uh, that there's been a major failure by my generation of the 1960s in governance. Uh, Both the Democratic and the Republican parties are are in disarray. We should be concerned about uh, what kind of um, political leaders we're going to have as we move into the millennium. We have to begin, it seems to me, at the very bottom level and really look at the kind of education that's being given. I feel that um, that too much of contemporary education, about the primary and the secondary level, uh, is shot through with a kind of with negativity, uh, with um, false and shallow ironies, with uh, paranoia uh, about the past. There has been a, a um, falling away of the will to give a basic education to um, to the students. The schools have become. Uh, instruments of social engineering. There are, are uh, a million political points to the way the curricula are structured at both the primary and the secondary level. Now I must emphasize that I am coming out of the immigrant experience and my premises remain that. All four of my grandparents were born in Italy and so was my mother. Public education was wonderful for us in America and for a very long time uh, the, there was um, a sense that primary education should be disciplined, should be orderly, uh, should be simple, should unify. Uh, And for some reason, again, many of the um, forces uh, that were unleashed by my generation into into the culture have undone uh, that kind of resolution that we had before. There's something terribly wrong with um, with our educational system, and it's no good going on saying, "Oh no, we—it's well, it, everything's fabulous." It isn't fabulous. It's awful, all right? And, and the, the students, I, I, the, the recent graduates I meet also of the humanities programs, um, are. They're cowed, okay, in some strange way by their um, by their encounters with the with the, the tar baby of poststructuralism, okay, which is stuck to them. Uh, they're cowed and they're 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 nice, but they're melancholy, okay, uh, and they're afraid. You know, and they they lack the sort of the, the big exuberant vitality of my generation, okay, who were trained uh, in the uh, with great works of art, okay, which which enlarged us. Great works of art enlarge the soul, okay? they enlarge enlarge you, the enlarge your imagination. Um, and, and nothing great will ever be produced by people who are told that greatness doesn't exist. Okay, if you're told that oh greatness is, is um, just an, you know ideological um, conspiracy, then you're never going to be inspired to spend 20 years of your life writing a 700 page book the way I did. Okay, all right, I I as a woman was trying to achieve something great. Okay, I thought it's about time women do something great like that. Okay, all right, about time something big, something monumental. Write a book that goes from cave art to the Rolling Stones. That was my dream. Okay, and so on. If you must, we must. It seems to me fire up students. Okay, not throw the cold douche of irony on them prematurely. Okay, now, I'm still in primary education here. I haven't gotten out of that yet, all right? (laughs) Okay, all right, Um, now I believe, this is very unfashionable, I believe in facts. I believe there are facts. Every fact is certainly always in question. Okay, we should, you know, be prepared to revise the facts as we understand them. But there are facts. Not everything is relative. For heaven's sakes, okay? I believe there are certain key facts that people should be, should know, and that it's up it's teachers' responsibility to decide what that core curriculum of facts um, should be. Teachers have had no guts. They are gutless wonders. All right, it's like this cafeteria curriculum that has spread since the 1960s, is absolutely disastrous. I have a little bit of this and a little bit of that, sort of a salad bar thing, a little bit of that, a little bit of that, a little bit of that, okay? End result. Nothing. Okay. End result, big zero. Now I've noticed um, uh, how, how often people who understand my work, for example, which is very historical and has this long, big narrative sweep to it, which people have, with other other of the you know postmodernists say can't, you can't, that, that can't exist. No great narratives are possible anymore. Really. Okay. Look, I can think in these long narratives. I'm sorry. I've noticed how often that the only people who understand my work, it seems, are often graduates of Columbia, the Columbia program in the history of ideas. All right. Which which the very high-level history of ideas. And the University of Chicago also had a very similar response, I think, to that. I believe the core curriculum, um, where you de- you determine what or who are the greatest thinkers, who are the greatest artists, and present those to the students in a chronological way to give people a sense of history, okay, and so on, not just all over the map, and a kind of chic uh, juxtaposition or collage, and so on, that that is the proper way to teach. Now, obviously, I believe in canon revision, for heaven's sakes. I don't believe the canon is something immutable. In my own work, I. I, for example, threw out Chaucer and Milton, and I, I put in the Marquis de Sade. Now that was, um, you know, I, I added him. I mean, so I, I, I know that um, we are always revising our idea of what is great. That's, that's, that should be obvious. At the same time, um, you know, there, 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 are, there are certain key texts which all educated people should know. And in my work also, I have argued that we do need to expand uh, the curriculum outward to, uh, in a in a scholarly multiculturalism that includes all of the great world uh, traditions. Now, I was the first to, to argue that that world religions should be the basis of such a curriculum, and now that idea has been uh, st- you know taken from me. I won't mention my home um, by people without credit, of course. At the time, I was I was scorned for that. Oh, religion! We don't want education everything to do with, with religions, but now here at the end of this decade, it's starting to seem more and more attractive because for me um, the world Great world religions include uh, architecture, and, and art, and, um, and the, the great texts of any given you know, We can't understand any culture until we know the religious background of that culture. And I believe that, um, as an atheist, that the uh, world religions are great symbol systems that give you a sense of the vastness and mystery of, of the universe. And they are far more sustaining spiritually to students than Foucault. Okay, Foucault is a dead end. I keep telling you this, and I want you to go out there and tell everyone else about
0: that. Yeah, so there she is again. You know, I know she ticks a lot of people off, but... Uh, she's great. Isn't she fantastic? And, and when she talks about that, you know, the losing the, the, the wonder of the past and the respect for the awesomeness of things have, that have been done. That
3: floored me when she's talked yeah. about greatness. Yeah. That the fact out there that people are saying that there's no such thing as greatness, that it's an intellectual construct. It right. doesn't really exist. What a load of hooey. Exactly. Good for her for pointing yeah. that... Yep. Yeah.
0: So as she said at the beginning of the speech, she says, you know, many people know her for her dissident feminist views, but really she's been, this is one of her primary concerns, is the state of education. She, as an immigrant, she received uh, the standard public education, but back in those days, it was actually a good education. So, you know, she talks about some of the reasons why it, it isn't that way anymore. What I found interesting, too, is she's uh, obviously... For, um, she was. Uh, she's a boomer, and uh, she gives a lot of criticism to her generation as being the the cause of that breakdown, which reminded me of PJ O'Rourke. I don't know if you've seen his latest book. It's the um, I think it's called. Where is it here? Um, the Baby Boom: How It Got That Way and It Wasn't My Fault. So <laughs> it's interesting that both of them are yes. people who, while saying our generation was great, there were some great things about it, but they acknowledged some of the bad, too, that came after it. And I would have to think part of that is you know, and and, and Pollya makes this point, too. She said, back in the 60s, it made sense to deconstruct and critique the 50s because they were very wasp and conformist, and there were things to criticize. But to continue to tell kids in modern generations, we have to constantly critique. Why?
3: Well you know, the thing about generations and the youth is that they are always anti establishment. They're, They're going to always against anyway. the parents. Yeah. The the problem with that um fact of youth is that what happens when your parents come up with a good system? Yeah. You throw it out yeah. simply for the sake of throwing <laughs> it out. For the sake
0: of throwing it for out. For putting
3: yeah. your own stamp on education. You've actually destroyed education. And that's exactly. what they've done in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, yeah. progressively since that time, Right, post-war.
0: Yeah, because as she says about the 60s, that might have been a good idea at that time to get rid of some of those things, but not everything. No. And that seems to be where we are. Um, and uh, she says she actually likes to make a point of teaching new freshman classes so she can see where... Where the people coming in are, because she's noticed that uh, it gives her a sense of what's missing from them. But she so far has been identifying the same problem. And she says there's a cultural disaster going on because of the failures in primary education. Uh, The most important issue she identifies is that of history. She says, you know, we can't have an electorate that is is as ill-educated in their sense of history as this one is.
3: Yeah. I, I always have to have a laugh at some of those uh, videos that you see on, a, what's his name, Fallon or, you know, the late night talk show. Host. Oh, they go yeah, out there yeah. with a microphone yeah, on yeah. the beach yeah, during yeah. A spring break and they ask oh, these my. high school graduates and university students mm-hmm. things like, when was the War of 1812 yeah. fought?" <laughs> Oh gee, I don't know. Or who did we fight in this in the, in the war of independence? Oh, uh, I don't know. The ignorance is profound when it comes to history, especially in the United States. Perhaps less name. so here. I don't know. But um. well,
0: and you know, one of the one of the criticisms often lobbed at conservatives, certainly, and even just people generally on the right, is that we're so obsessed, we're stuck in the past, um, and always looking backwards. And I suppose that's a fair criticism up to a point, and that point is the one where. Um, it's said. It's said as if it's an insult um, that we, we have respect and and knowledge of history. I think that's actually very good because obviously we know the past. We can study it. We know what happened. What we don't know is the future, unless, dear Kreskin. Um, so. Isn't it helpful to know what's behind
3: you? Camille Camille Pagli said something very interesting when she's talking about facts. Facts exist. Yes. So when you actually, in our 2,000-year history of uh, civilization, 2,500 years or so, of getting together in groups, actually come up with some good ideas. Yeah. Keep them. Keep them. Yes. Don't destroy them. Move yeah. on. Yeah. You know, well, it's add the... to them. Don't take them apart.
0: Right. And I thought, actually, Jer- Jeremy Paxman was very good in that interview. I usually don't like him, but he was very yeah. good in that. And one of the things I appreciated was that he was trying to force Russell. It's, it's all well and good to just criticize. So what's your solution?
3: Exactly. And I love the way he, he pounded him until he finally uh, brought it out of him that his solution was communism. Yeah. Communism.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I was going to mention too the. Uh, so, of course, one of uh, Camille Paglia's prescriptions is to focus on core curriculum. Yes. Which makes sense. Um, and determine what or who are the greatest thinkers um, and present those to the students in a chronological way to give people a sense of history, not just this all over the map, disjointed, apparently meaningless activity that has surrounded us. Um, so, and I think she's right about those her prescriptions for for improving our, our education. She's right
3: on she's right on. I, I once saw a speech given by Rex Murphy on education, and um, he nailed it. And this man knows, I think what he's talking about, at least in this particular area, when he talks that all knowledge is hierarchical. Yeah, It starts from first premises and right. and then expands from there in an inverted cone. Yeah. you cannot treat. Education as a hodgepodge of facts thrown about with yeah, any connectivity. like random and kind of... That's yeah, the yeah. way our system is today. It is a hodgepodge of facts thrown around, yeah. thrown around without any connections, integrations, as Leonard Right, and she, she believes say. the
0: role of the teachers and the education system is to make those things have meaning, right? Put them in perspective and have some That's, meaning.
3: Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's totally lacking in that respect.
0: Yeah. Now, I uh, was going to also... Uh, Mention this. I, th- I think you guys have spoken about Stephen Hicks before. On your, oh, your,
3: of course, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: I found this really interesting because uh, Camille Paglia really goes into criticism of postmodernism and Foucault and all that. Um, so, in, from his, this quote from his book entitled Explaining Postmodernism, Skepticism and Socialism from Rousseau to Foucault uh, on Using Contradictory Discourses as a Political Strategy, I think it's bang on. Um, see if this doesn't sound familiar um, when it comes to describing the madness and the inconsistencies of postmodernism. He says, in postmodern discourse, truth is rejected explicitly and consist- consistency can be a rare phenomena. Considering the following pairs of claims. On the one hand, all truth is relative. On the other hand, postmodernism tells it like it really is. Um, on the one hand, all cultures are equally deserving of respect. On the other, Western culture is uniquely destructive and bad.
3: They're both the same hand he's talking about here.
0: (laughs) Uh, Let's see what else. Values are subjective, but sexism and racism are really evil. (sighs) Uh, Technology is bad and destructive, and it is unfair that some people have more technology than others. Yeah. And the last one was tolerance is good and dominance is bad, but when postmodernists come to power, political correctness follows. What I love so. <laughs> about
3: today's intellectuals is that they use their intellect to destroy the intellect, and that's yeah. all we have time for today. <laughs> Thank you, Mary Lou. So join us again next week when we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, you know what to do. As Bob says, be right, think right, act right, stay right, and be right back here. We'll see you.
2: color black and white, under the bedclothes, everything will be
3: all right. Leonard, I've been working on an opening joke for our lecture at Berkeley. Oh, I like to laugh, but say it anyway. <laughs> okay, um, what do you say to a graduate of the UC Berkeley physics department? I'll have fries with that. <laughs>
4: Because his education hasn't prepared him for a career in the sciences.
0: You know, when they chase you out of there, you only have to run faster than Sheldon.